Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com backslash startup. I'd like to thank Fernando Jonti for introducing us to today's guest, George Milton, co-founder and CEO of Yellowbird Sauce. Spicy condiments crafted to take you on a fiery fresh food adventure. This is a conversation about all things hot sauce, which I really enjoyed. George takes us through his journey from playing music gigs to becoming known as the hot sauce guy in Austin, Texas, and how he was able to scale his condiment business nationally. This was a really fun conversation. And without further ado, here's George. George, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Good, Mike. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, George. I really appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about your story and how you started making hot sauce. Um, well, I mean, uh, there, it's a long story. I'll tell you the short version. Uh, me and my partner, Aaron, moved to Austin, Texas from Houston in 2012. We moved here as um, creatives. So I was, uh, I was working full time as a, as a musician. So freelance house band, uh, studio stuff. Um, and I had been doing that for about a decade and she was, uh, she had, she was, had come from the, um, design, uh, visual design world. And she was doing that at, at a corporate level. Um, and she kind of moved to freelancing as well. So we moved to Austin, Texas with no jobs, got us a cheap house and um, started kind of building our building our lives here, um, mostly based around uh, creative work for her design and for me, music. Um, we, we were at the time in our, well, I guess I had just turned 30. Um, so we were, we, were, we were both coming out of our late 20s at that time, and we were getting into clean eating. Um, and one of the things that uh, we, we both used to be, like we were both student athletes and like uh, all this sort of stuff back, back when we were in school. We still, you know, keep in shape and all of that sort of stuff. But we're getting to that point in our lives where it's like you start to realize that that, that will only get you so far. So we were kind of trying to clean up our diets um, there in our late twenties. And one of the things that like the, the, really the beginning of that was that we were, uh, reading ingredient lists a lot more. So this was 2011, 2012, that we were really getting into that and just realizing like how much stuff that you don't think about is in your food that you get from the grocery store or restaurants or whatever, um, preservatives, colors, flavorings, like additives that you don't, you know, you don't really know what they are or how they affect you. And some of them, you know, some of them are asinine or some of them might actually be pretty bad for you. So we were, we were really getting into ingredient reading. One of the things, you know, we, we got a lot of stuff out of our regular diets that were, you know, salad dressings and things that it's like, oh man, these have a lot of like, you know, these have a lot of like processed sugars in them. They've got a lot of hydrogenated oils. Like it's, a lot of the same ingredients that are in like cake icing and stuff that you're putting on a salad or, you know, like a lot of breads that um, you can get at the store have a lot of sugar in them, a lot of preservatives, things like that. Um, so we had fairly well cleaned up our uh, diets as far as what we we're buying at the store. The, the one thing that I could not find a replacement for was uh, we were using a lot of the Hui Fong Sriracha and I, I try not to throw them under the bus, but there is a lot of sugar in that product um and there are a handful of preservatives that are that you know potassium sorbate sodium bisulfite stuff that is you know not good for you um the only purpose of that stuff being there is to make the color look a little better to make the product last five years it's like it doesn't need to last five years people eat that stuff so fast there's no reason for it to last five years um so we, we, I just started making, I said like, Hey, I, for, for a while I was just looking for like, cause I was going through, you know, a bottle of the Sriracha, like in two days or less, like I would just, 
you know, I do beans and rice or chicken and vegetables or something. And it would just, you know, sriracha would just go all over it. I mean, like the stuff that I liked about it was that it was like a really thick sauce. It actually had, you know, it actually had a decent amount of heat to it. And the, you know, the garlic, the sweetness, the, um, the consistency, the squeeze bottle, all of the things, like I liked all of those things about it. And I was like, there's gotta be a version out there that is, um, that's not so bad for you. Um, and I, I looked for a while and I couldn't really find anything. Like I was hitting the specialty markets, the, you know, online, um, you know, any of the specialty grocery, natural grocery stores, there just wasn't anything out there at that time. And so I started, I, I was just like, okay, I, I started working in the, um, in kitchens when I was uh, 15 years old. So a, a long time ago. And the, my first job was a hot wing joint, like in the kitchen. And so we'd just be like drinking hot sauce out of the, yeah, I love hot sauce, but the, but so I had, I was like, I can figure this out. I can figure out, you know, I had a list of like attributes that I liked and then a list of attributes that I didn't like. And so like I had, like when we moved to Austin, I was already in like full on experimentation mode. So like our pantry here, um, it was this house that we moved to. So we still live here, but the, um, uh, the pantry was like all hot sauce experiments with like tape and numbers on them and I had a bunch of notebooks that just had like you know batch number 78 uh batch number 78b and you know I changed the garlic I used uh you know potatoes in this one to try and thicken it up and here's the results and here's what I liked about it and what I didn't like about it. like it was insane like I, I was just trying to make something for us at home so I think that that's important to note that I was not trying to start a business I was just trying to solve this problem for like um, for like Aaron and myself. Um, and the, the winning batch actually ended up being, um, that like we had some stuff. I, I, I had a recipe that I was kind of tweaking. Um, I, it had, uh, bell peppers and Manzano peppers and, um, I was using some limes and some different things that I was kind of like tweaking amounts with. And then I had some, uh, we had, we were like going through some stuff in the fridge. You know how when you're like, uh, you go through the fridge and you're like, you have all this stuff you want, you want to kind of like get rid of. Well, usually what I will do is I'll make like a stew out of it or something. And like, so I had, so, I think I had some, uh, I had some carrots left over and some tangerines. And I was like, I'm just going to throw them in this batch of sauce. And I had it aging in the, in the pantry with a number on it. And I was just like, oh, I wrote down, okay, I added some you know some carrots and tangerines that were like throwaway and then we kind of forgot about it and then i went back and i was like okay batch you know whatever we gotta i want to try this one and it was like so good it was like so we we used like carrots and tangerines was kind of like you know uh that was like this that was kind of the secret sauce for us like i mean it's on the label right i'm not telling you anything that's um but but that was for me, it was like, a, it was like, it got, it was a good combination of like the sweetness of both and kind of the, um, the, you know, you get a lot of thickness from, uh, carrots. They've got some natural, um, thickeners in them. Um, so it's it anyway, like that was the recipe that we, that we use. That was our, haven't turned into our habanero sauce. And that's all we made for a couple of, so that's how I got into it was, I was just, really obsessed with making something that that would that would kind of fit this bill for what we wanted just at the house but what was the moment that that you realized that hey maybe this could actually be a business yeah that's a good question and it's kind of i, I mean the the moment I, I don't know if there was like an a single aha moment it was something that kind of developed over over time um but i was i was playing a lot around austin at work you know as a musician and i had um, um, a, a regular bar, a piano bar that I play at downtown. And there was a, so I would like bring it in as I was kind of like mixing up these recipes, I would just bring it in and have people try it, you know, like friends and family, et cetera. Like kind of the, if you're starting a business, the feedback group that, that is like, you kind of have to rule out, like when, if you're getting feedback from your mom, that this is a good product, it doesn't really mean that it's a good business idea. But like I was getting, you know, I would take, I would take in some stuff and I would have like a couple of jars of like, Hey, I was, you know, everybody kind of knew that I was making hot sauce and uh, because I wouldn't shut 
up about it and uh and i would be like hey this is uh you know this is this is batch number you know this is batch number 15 of this recipe like what do you think i kind of think it's got too much salt but but let me know what you think i'm sensitive you know i'm real sensitive to salt or whatever so let me get your take on it and we finally kind of like hit on that uh the amazing recipe that ended up being our first recipe i was like taking it around to people that i knew and like you know give it a try and i was just putting it in those um you know those those squeeze bottles the like condiment the the um the plain like uh kind of translucent condiment bottles you can just like get at the store and fill with whatever like fill with oil or fill with a sauce or whatever i was just getting those at like restaurant depot and um and and i was just used so that's why i put the sauce on it i put it in those little those condiment squeeze bottles and I would just make a couple extra bottles and hand it out to people and just be like, Hey, what do you think? Like, uh, just, you can have this, give me your feedback. Um, and the, the, the kind of like first recipe that was really good, you know, like people just were like going ape shit about it. like, Oh my God, it's so good. And I was like, okay, that's, you know, cool. I've, I thought, I think it's good too. And that's, this is the recipe. So, um, you know, and I would still, you know, and then I had that group of people kind of like, well, Hey man, let me get another bottle of that. And so it kind of turned into a, like, you know, I'd show up at the, I'd show up at the bar and I'd have to bring a backpack full of hot sauce. Cause I had, you know, 12 different people I had to like hand out hot sauce to. And it was just something that I was doing. It was something I was doing for fun. And then, you know, it kind of like, like I had also made a couple of uh, uh, albums, you know, as a musician, like I'd written, written and produced some albums and um, I would, I'd be trying to sell those like, Hey man, you, you know, this is when people still had, I, I guess physical albums right at the end of that time when people could still sell a physical album and not just, Hey man, look me up on Spotify or whatever. Um, but I was like, I had these albums I was trying to sell and it kind of got to the point where like, where like there were customers and people like from the bar, like, or like people in the surrounding area who kind of like knew that I was making this hot sauce. And I'd be like, Hey, I got these albums or, you know, how take an album for $5 or hell, just take one for free. I don't, I don't care. And people be like, no, man, no, that's cool. I don't want an album, but like, you're the hot sauce guy, right? Like you got like, uh, if there's any way that I could get a bottle of that hot sauce next time you play, like, let me know next time you're going to be down here and I'll come down and you know, what does it cost? And I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know what it costs. Right. Like I had, I was doing it for myself. I, I hadn't costed it out. Um, and so that was a thing. I think I was probably selling it for, I think I was just selling it for the cost of the bottle. So I was like, I don't know, 250 or whatever, uh, whatever the it cost for me to like get that physical squeeze bottle. Um, and so that's, that was kind of how it turned into a business was just like me selling it out of my backpack at a, at a bar where I was playing music and trying to sell albums. That's amazing. Just people coming up to you and saying you're the hot sauce guy and just wanting your, uh, your hot sauce. What was, um, talk to me a little bit. So once you realize that, okay, there is a need here, um, people are enjoying it. You, you're becoming the hot sauce guy and talk to me a little bit about how you're able to commercialize it and, and, and how you thought about like early growth. Yeah. So, I mean, commercializing it again, this, it took a long, long time for me to do right. Like I, like I want to, I want you and your listeners and whoever to know that I was a double major in college in music engineering and theater performance so i like and when this started growing legs i was not fully equipped to come in with a fully fleshed out business model and pricing strategy i mean we've had that for years now right but like day one i was not i was not super equipped to scale this as a business you know like i i I didn't have the tools or the knowledge or you know to say here's what it takes to be a, you know, hundred thousand dollar company. Here's what it takes to be a 500,000, you know, here's what it takes to be a $10 million company, whatever. Um, So in the early days, in the early days, like I had started taking it around to places in Austin um, and we started going to, we started like signing up for farmer's markets and kind of like taking it to some local spots in Austin that wanted to sell it. And we went to uh, show up for a farmer's market and they were like, where's your, uh, we need your manufacturing license and we need your like health inspection at your, I mean, this is like the very first like commercial sales that we were making of this product. And so like, there was a lot, um, there was a lot that I learned about like, here's how you, here's how you safely manufacture and sell 
and legally sell like a food product. And it was, you know, so I, we had to leave the farmer's market. They were, you know, you know, I'm glad it speaks for the farmer's market that they're only allowing like safe legal products there. Um, but they kind of, the, the lady there kind of gave me a list of like, here's what I need. And this is the same stuff that you need to like sell in a grocery store or sell, you know, online as a grocery company. Um, and so I just kind of went and knocked them off the list. And, and, and then we, you know, this was 20 or, or late 2012, I guess, when this was all happening, we had not officially started as a company. Um, but that, that was kind of, it was kind of just me knocking stuff off the list for a while. Like you need a manufacturing license. Well, how do I get a manufacturing license? You have to kind of like, you know, at the time, like it would, you just had to kind of run around in circles with the, you know, local health department and the, you know, state and all of this sort of stuff to figure out, you know, because it's all still, all of those departments are still like mail this in or fax this in or whatever, you know, it's not, you know, none of that stuff is in the 21st century at all. So it's still like, yeah, we'll just send us your fax number. We'll fax over the form and then you can fax it back. And I'm like, Hey, what if it's 2012 and I don't have a fax machine, <laughs> you know? So like we're, we're, we're going through all of that. So it's kind of months of just like, oh, I've got this cool, this cool hot sauce that I think people are really into. And, you know, Erin designed the brand. I don't want to leave that part out either. So like she designed the packaging, the bottle, the label, all of the, you know, all of the collateral that went around it. Um, so it was kind of a fun project that we did together. But as far as like starting it up, it was a bunch of like, okay, we need a, your health, we need your health permit. And in order to get a health permit, you have to have a commercial kitchen you know, and in order to have a commercial kitchen, you got to go find somebody who's leasing out space who has a commercial kitchen, and then you got to get set up under their lease. So like just figuring that stuff out at the time there were, I don't, I don't really know what the situation is right now in Austin with commercial kitchens. But at the time, there were a handful of, of places where you could go and like rent by the hour. And I, I went to a place um, that actually doesn't exist anymore as a commissary kitchen. It's now a, um, it's now a, a bento restaurant, which is really good, and I love to eat there. But but it's, uh, but it's but it but like there were a few spaces like that, and we got into that space, and I I got I paid like a discounted rate to get there off hours. So like because I had been working as a musician. I had like a late night schedule anyway. So I would go in from like 10 PM to like 6 AM. I would get like 50% off of the regular rate. And I just like had a key fight cause nobody else wanted to use the kitchen during those hours. Um, so that was like our first kitchen. And we, you know, we got inspected by the city of Austin and we got all the products, you know, well, it was only one product at the time, but we got it, you know, we had it lab tested and shelf life tested and made sure that the, you know, packaging worked and the, all of these kinds of things that, that you got to do. So that was kind of the beginning of it. Obviously it's, you know, there've been multiple, like we run our own factory now, but that was kind of like the first stage. Sounds like a very arduous process. After you've started to build out the um, commercial kitchen and uh, commercialize it, talk to me a little bit about maybe now or, or later on about how you, how you thought about sourcing for Sriracha and as well as like product expansion, like developing different types of sauces. Uh, so the the way that we th the way that we've always thought about sourcing was like the first recipes that we made. We had actually uh, when we moved here, we both had, have a pretty healthy obsession. Uh, I think it's a healthy obsession with spicy food. But we had like uh, we tore up our our backyard here. It's not a big backyard, but we tore it up and planted I think like two hundred habanero plants in the backyard. So like the very first stuff that we made was, you know, organic habaneros from our backyard. And so when we, when we started saying like, Hey, we're going to sell this, um, we're going to sell this commercially, we're going to sell it kind of locally or do it online. We really wanted it to be, uh, we really wanted it to be as organic as we could possibly manage. So that was kind of where we started was like, we want it to be organic. We want it to be fresh. Um, it turns out those two things kind of get tricky to source when you, when you start talking about like larger volumes, it gets tricky to source certain things because I mean, there's, there's some stuff that is pretty widely available, like organically, like if you want organic, uh, cucumbers or organic carrots or, you know, like organic tomatoes, there's a lot of certain things out there. 
um, one of the things that we couldn't get organic, like right out the gate was we couldn't get organic chilies. They, it's just, it's just been kind of like a most, most brands or most smaller hot sauce brands that were doing organic chilies were growing them themselves. Right. And which is, it becomes a little bit of a nightmare to scale if you're not a farmer, which I'm not right. Like we, we, we farmed here. We, we farmed at home, right. It was just gardening at, at that point. But you know, like we, in the, in the early days, we went out and did, we did a lot of looking at like farmland and like, Hey, not a, not a ton of farmland, but like, Hey, can we get at least three or four acres of farmland? And uh, it's, it was kind of, it ended up being like just too big of a project for the two of us to manage and just like the amount of equipment that you needed to buy, the amount of infrastructure you needed to build just to grow three acres or five acres worth of stuff is tremendous. So we, we started really like, um, trying to start partnerships as early on as we could and find people that like we could invest time and money with um, to make it worth their while over the over the long haul right like our our you know as soon as we started like commercializing things and saying hey we're going to scale this up we started looking we started looking far out with our business you know it's not um, it it's never been our it's never been our goal to just like turn and burn yellow bird sauce, right? Like it's something that we want to get right. I think that there's the, the grocery industry as a whole, there's a lot of, there's a lot of brands that are moving in a more sustainable way. Right. I think that, you know, what, like our goal is to be the number one uh, hot sauce in America. Right. Like I, and I hope that uh, Cholula is listening to this podcast too, because we're coming for you. Um, but the, I mean, so that's our, that's our goal, but, but we want to do it. We want to kind of like set a solid foundation for it that we have, you know, like a network of like family farms that are organic that we, you know, organically, you know, sustainably, you know, fair trade practices that there, you know, that there's not, there's not exploited labor on their, you know, on their farms, things like that, that it's that when we, that when we get to that point, it is all like the structure of it is is completely solid. So that's a lot of what we've done over the years is try to form partnerships with um, as directly as we can with like farmers or um, or or their or a farmer you know organic farmers like broker rep representative or something so that we don't have um, and to to be totally honest it it is a uh, it logistically is a is a challenge to do that year round but we've uh we've slated that as something that's really important to our business so it's like you you know it's, it's like in your personal life if you if you decide that it's important then you just do it if you decide that you know exercise or diet is important you just do it a little bit every day and that's kind of how we view those partnerships is it's not you know it's not something that we can accomplish overnight it's something that gets built over a long term and i mean so it seems like the hardest part about sourcing was actually being able to scale the actual organic peppers is that right yeah that's that's right i mean there have been there have been a lot of parts of it that were very difficult but it, it certainly like organic chili peppers was something that took us a long time to get to kind of like get a regular um kind of a regular schedule on or set up where we could get set up with contracts on an annual basis so that we you know that we're promising you know we we can provide like like the cool thing for for manufacturers for food manufacturers is that like most food manufacturers are not ingredient suppliers as well like they're you know for the most part you have people uh you know like like yellowbird or you know whoever else that's a that's kind of like the middle step between the farmer and the consumer. Um, so like if people are like, Hey, is yellow bird, the best sauce, best hot sauce for me, the best thing that I could possibly do. The best thing you could possibly do is buy peppers at a farmer's market directly from a farmer and go home and make your own hot sauce. Yellow bird is the second best thing you can do when it comes to hot sauce. Right. So like, um, so like the, 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 um, the, the organic chilies, like that was a big, um, 
that was a big thing for us to do that took a long time. That makes sense. I mean, it's also like a huge selling uh, selling point to people that that you want buying. I wanted to wanted to talk as well how you think about like your your maybe target customer or your and your brand positioning. Like in the early days, how did you kind of approach your brand your brand positioning and kind of where you like laid in like the hot sauce category? Well, in the early days, we had a really hard time because we're a little. I would say not, not today, but like certainly when we first, you know, 2013, when we said, um, Hey, this hot sauce is going to be $8 a bottle on the shelf. It was like, we, like, I spent a lot of time. I, I, I want, I, I want your listeners to also know that I spent months and years getting rejected for the, you know, people telling me that it was, a dumb idea or it was a good idea, but it was too expensive and nobody would ever go for it or whatever. Right. Um, so I, I, so one of the hurdles for us was saying, okay, setting a fair price. We, w- the first thing that we went in, we said, okay, we need a, we need a pricing strategy. What we started with was we, we want it to be, we want to provide an organic, like what we want to do is support farmers, right? Support organic farmers. And we want to give people a better experience. Like there, there's a better, you know, the, what hot sauce has been for, you know, the last 200 years or whatever, like there's a better experience that we can give people that, you know, fresh fruits and fresh, fresh, you know, vegetables and like better formulations and like all this sort of stuff. So like we want to support organic farmers who, who are doing the right thing. And we want to support the consumer, you, you know, our, our consumer is spending more on hot sauce than, you know, the uh, Tabasco or Cholula consumer because our hot sauce, you know, our ingredients are more expensive, our processing a little more expensive, you know, logistics, it's all kind of a little more expensive because it's a better product. Um, So, but what we said like from day one was like, we want to make, we want to make organic food affordable for more people. so we we didn't want to like price it in the stratosphere. We we want like from day one we said like this that we should price this so that it so that it could be nationally competitive. And so we were pricing a bottle at you know eight dollars. And since then we've kind of done we we ended up doing a smaller bottle for retail than what we were initially do, selling. You know when we first priced it in two thousand thirteen. Um, but but our initial position was like this is an organic, you know, better for you hot sauce that is approachable for everyone. That was kind of how we thought about it on day one. This is before we had, like, we didn't have a bunch of industry data behind this. And I do, I do have to admit that we had, it was a big uphill battle, you know, for a long time, getting anybody to sign on at that price. Like, no, you know, you're going to stores that like in 2013, like the most expensive hot sauce that you could find, like at a national level was like 350 on the shelf. So we're talking about, you know, over a hundred percent, you know, higher than what they, than their, than their current highest priced hot sauce. Now I would like to think that Yellowbird had some part in bringing that category up a little bit. You know, I, I think that we, we certainly have seen it in the last, you know, seven or eight years, you know, like, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Truff Hot Sauce, but, the, but they're selling, uh, they're, they sell their hot sauce for, I think it's like $18 for a four ounce bottle. And, and they're, in, they're in now some national distribution with, with, with retailers and stuff like that. But so the, the point that I'm trying to make is not to get, you know, not to give one of our competitors a plug, but to say that the, you know, that over the last seven or eight years, like the, the, what, you know, people understand, you know, and you're looking at, I'm talking a lot about like, like the Whole Foods customer or the, you know, the Amazon customer who's kind of like buys a little better or, you know, Thrive Market customer, Sprouts customer, you know, Costco customer who, you know, Costco is like the number one seller of organic uh, food in the U.S. Um, and so like that, that kind of customer is, you know, I, th- I think that there's a certain point at which you're, the price is ridiculous, right? There are some, there are some sauces that are, you know, $20 or $30 for a little bottle. And it's kind of like, these are, um, those are not for mass market. They're more for like, 
like a specialty online shop or like a hot sauce, you know, shop or whatever. Um, so, so like our, our early positioning and we've had to, you know, we've had to kind of like modify this over time, but, but I think that it's the general concept of like uh, better, you know, a better product, organic produce that's at a, an affordable price for everyone kind of like shapes a lot of what we do. Like if it's, if it's, if I'm sitting there trying to decide, like, do I add an extra 10% to my gross margin so that I can go throw a bunch of money on it at like TV commercials? I'm not going to do that because I want, I want the, well, I want the quality to be there. I'd rather spend, I'd rather spend more money on, on good ingredients. Like if I had, if I just had an extra 10% to spend, I would just go try to find a better version of our current ingredients or I would try to give people a better price. You kind of pay the picture about how the market developed, you know, before maybe at the early stages, you know, distributors probably thought of you as just this something that that couldn't be national. It couldn't be in every store or couldn't be in a lot of stores. But now, as you say, there's there's companies out there that make, you know, a $30 hot sauce that, you know, a, a four ounce um, hot sauce for $30. So it's just interesting to see how that market has developed. For, for the first couple of years or so, you got rejected in retail or had a hard time to get into distribution. How did you approach distribution? Like, did you go from, I know that you started out in uh, farmer's markets. Was it first initially the farmer's markets and then was it direct to consumer channel or just how did you think about distribution in the early days as well? Uh, I, I didn't really think about distribution very much at the very beginning. We, like in, when we were doing farmer's markets, it was like here in town or like we'd go not far um, and then, you know, like our early distribution was just like, we had a handful of, you know, I had maybe 20 accounts in Austin for a little while. And I kind of thought that would be the thing, right. You know, like I had a handful of local restaurants and some like local grocery stores, which we have a lot of, you know, we got a lot of like local markets or, you know, vegan markets, specialty markets. And so like I had signed on maybe 20 local places and I was, I would just like, once a week, I would just spend a day and I would drive around and say hey to everybody and give some high fives. These were back in the days when you could give high fives. Um, that, but uh, you know, and then I and then I would just you know I drop off I would drop off sauce and you know they would pay me for it and that that was kind of distribution. That was kind of the first version of distribution, like distribution v one. Um, the first the first like chain that we got in that was that was outside of austin was was uh whole foods and whole foods like whole foods has been a really big part of of building our brand but we like it was just, when it was just me driving around to these handful of, of uh, restaurants and stuff in austin and then we actually got a call from whole foods because they had they had apparently been eating lunch at a couple of the places that we were that i was delivering to and so they would swap between these two places for the for lunch and it was like i'm only delivering to like a handful of places in austin i have all the places you can eat in austin i just happen to be delivering to both of the places that the whole foods team was like going to every day for lunch and so they called us because i just like i initially had my cell phone number was just like on the bottle you know and uh and so th so they like called and there it was like hey this is you know, this is Linda from Whole Foods. And I was like, okay, sure it is. Um, but, but she was like, yeah, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to put you in some, in some Whole Foods stores. And it, you like, once I believed it was actually Whole Foods and all of this stuff that like, they ended up putting us in, I think like 36 stores, like across Texas. Um, and that was, you know, that was the point at which I needed help with the distribution. So we used a, uh, we used a small distributor for a little while that was like, it was literally like five guys and a couple of like unmarked white vans. Um, and they're not in business anymore. I would give them a shout out there, but they don't exist anymore. Um, but those were like, I mean, those guys were like distribution cowboys. It would be like, they would, they would pick it up at, you know, at like 6am on, you know, on Tuesday. And then like at nine 30, they'd be like, distributing it to stores in Dallas and I'm like how'd you even get there and you know in three and a half hours but so that was kind of the the first version and then we we really had to kind of like lobby for for years to start getting in 
with some of the bigger distributors because that was kind of like it's kind of a chicken and egg thing like if you go to a if you go to a retailer and say like hey i want to be you know even if they really like the product they don't most places don't want to be the first person to get in and distribution like most places don't want to be your anchor account luckily like whole foods believes in our brand and was you know would be was happy to be our anchor account you know with with our first big distributor and then from there we could kind of go talk to other stores that they distributed to so that's kind of how we thought about it in the early days it was really a lot of like you know the the guys we were using in the vans like there would be times and it was like because they had such a small team like they they would call me up and be like hey anthony has the flu like can you make these deliveries to houston and i'm like shit i gotta leave now but yeah okay like so like that sort of stuff happened on a regular basis. It's not, you can't scale a company that way. It's not, it's not sustainable. And it's kind of like, yeah, but that, that I mean, that was early distribution for us. And it like, I fought hard for, for a bunch of years to get kind of like more ubiquitous in, in distribution. Um, Cause we don't, you know, the same, the same way that we don't really have the capacity or bandwidth to be farmers. We also don't have the capacity to be distributors. So like, there, there's like a couple of things that we do really well and it's, it's not, you know, self-distributing and it's not, you know, farming our own produce. I wish we were farmers. I would, I would love to, I would love to just be outside that much, but thanks for kind of taking us through like that, those early distribution days and that break that you, that, that you got that, that the Whole Foods employees were um, happy to be eating at those same restaurants and, and tried your product and then you got uh, hooked up with them. So that's that's amazing. Wanted to also talk as you're scaling about the reasons why, since this is a, a venture capital podcast, why you chose to fundraise and your fundraising strategy in, uh, initially. Yeah, uh, the the choosing why to fundraise or, or that we wanted to fundraise, that was a really tough choice for us um, because we came into this with a very like it was completely bootstrapped like you know like i i borrowed some money from my family i you know like i was like i was i was taking i was taking extra gigs and stuff as a musician to like knowing that like hey for the next two weeks i'm literally just paying for habaneros and garlic um so like there, there was like a lot of a lot a lot of personal sacrifice in the first few years um and uh like i don't i i'm not grudging about it i'm just that's just what it was right um but we kind of got to a point where i think it was it was 2015 when we made that decision so we had started in 2012 we had started kind of like out of our own kitchen like here try this what do you think in 2013 we were like you know, farmers markets and driving it around to a handful of places in Austin. So I don't want to compact this timeline. I spent a year driving around to, you know, 15, 20 places in Austin. Um, it wasn't like I did that for three weeks and then Whole Foods came knocking. So 2013, you know, and then 2014, Whole Foods was like, hey, we'd like to give this a try. Um, so again, like I, I went out and we got a commercial kitchen that's a, a dedicated kitchen. It was 1500 square feet. Um, it was just an awful building, terrible landlord. Um, but I signed the lease because I, you know, I knew that I had, you know, I was going to have to put out, you know, 80 cases of hot sauce a week. Um, and it was just me. It was just me doing that, you know, stirring hot sauce and, and putting it in bottles with a funnel and, all this sort of stuff, you know, really high tech stuff, you know, like we, and we did that for a handful of years. And one of the things that kept happening is that we kept having more demand than we could handle, right? Like people laughingly will say, well, that's a good problem to have. Sure. Yeah. Like I'd rather have that problem than the other problem where nobody wants your stuff. Um, but it's still kind of a major problem, right? Like we, we missed a lot of opportunity, um, because we couldn't make enough sauce because we couldn't, because we didn't have marketing dollars for a certain, you know, promotion, or we didn't have, you know, slotting money to, you know, like, Hey, this store wants to take, you know, this chain wants to take you in 200 stores in 2015. Well, that's just too damn bad because we, cause they also want to charge us 
you know, slotting fee and, and marketing dollars and they want us to do demos and I can't afford any of that stuff. Right. So like we were kind of like, I, I don't know, I don't know if at the end of our rope is the right, is the right scenario, but it was, you know, for all those years, it was just me and Aaron, you know, like putting labels on bottles, you know, like you twist the cap on, I'll put the label on. Um, meanwhile, we're still trying to like pay our bills and like have a, you know, working other jobs and things like this. So for the, for that first, like, you know, two, three, three and a half years, that's kind of like, and we were super excited to like see it growing. We're selling online. We're selling to, you know, to Whole Foods, a handful of other places. It was doing really well in all the places where we were kind of like selling it, but it was not a sustainable model. You know, like if that was, if that was the, if that was how the model was still working now, like I would be out of it. I'd, I'd be doing something else. I couldn't handle that forever, you know? So like one of the things we sat down and we did some like serious soul searching. It was like, look, this thing, um, people love it. It's got legs. We love it. We love doing it. Um, it's something that we personally believe in. Like I, you know, I, I adamantly believe that this, that, you know, organic farming is important, that getting people better food is important. Um, you know, like I grew up in a food family where like food was just, you know, having good food and providing good food for people was how you showed them love. And that, you know, so like that, that's something that I believe is important. And um, we said like, we kind of sat down and said like, hey, at this point, we have a business model. We have several different versions of a business model. What does it look like for us to keep doing it like it is now? And we put all this down on paper on in Excel, like whatever, like what does it look like for us to keep doing it as it is now? And what would it take for us to make this a national brand? And I've, I've had a lot of really great mentorship. I should also mention just in Austin around some of the brands that have come out of here so I wasn't making these decisions or these projections in a vacuum. I kind of was like, you know, getting, getting a bunch of really smart input to this stuff as well. So like, we were like, what does it take for us to be a national brand? And we put it out all, all out on paper and it's like, well, there's, there's not a great way for us to be a national brand without, without take, getting some money from somewhere. Um, and the first thing that I did was I, I went to banks, right? Like, Hey, this is a small, you know, we're a small business. Like, can we get a small business loan? Um, and that I heard nothing but no's and, you know, like come back, we'll come back to us when you have 500 stores or come back to us when you have this profitability number. And I had a model that was like, I'm never going to get to this amount of stores to this, you know, profitability number without like, I, I, there, there has to be a middle place somewhere where like, you know, like I can, I can put some money into equipment. I can put some money into like hiring somebody to come help me. Like I can put some money into slotting or distribution. Like I, I have to like put some money into it um, so that it can get to this point where like every bank that we talked to was like, yeah, you know, once you're doing 5 million in sales, we'll happily bank you. And I'm like, how am I supposed to get there? Like we've got it on paper. Like you have to sell a lot of hot sauce to do $5 million in sales. Right. So like that, that was kind of the, you know, that was kind of the point that we got to is like, Hey, it's not, it's not commercially bankable. Um, we got to go to some other sources. So we, I mean, that's, that was the, that was the decision. It was like, Hey, if we're all in on this, then we need some help. We need some financial help to do it. And, you know, we need all kinds of help to do it. We need marketing help, distribution help, sales help, um, and none of that stuff is free. So it's, uh, you know, it was like that, that was the, that's when we made the decision in uh, it was late 2015 that to do what we want to do with this brand, with the, with this product that, that it is going to take some money and that it's not, it's not available via conventional banking. banking. Um, so we just, we just started doing, I mean, I just, I just started doing what, you know, one of the like, two things I'm good at, which is just having conversations with people and saying like, how do you do this? Cause that, that was my first question was like, how, how does one raise money for, you know, let's assume that you're not, that you're a company that's not, you know, traditionally bankable. How do you raise money? If you, if you didn't come up in that environment, I think some people are kind of native to that environment, but I'm, I wasn't. So 
I, you know, I didn't know the funds. I didn't know the, you know, family groups to talk to. So I just started talking to whoever I could talk to. And, you know, a big part of it, a big part of how we raised that initial money is that we found, you know, we talked to enough people that we found the right people who were, uh, who were interested in our product and as passionate about our brand as we were. And that we were like, really, you know, we were all in on it, you know, like we weren't, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, Hey, maybe give us some money and maybe we'll do it. Like this is lives like that. You know, that was, that was our pitch is like, here's the business plan. But like part of what you get, you know, for the money is that like the people who did it are like all in on making it the best thing that it can possibly be. Thanks for kind of sharing your, your journey on the fundraising uh, part. Cause a lot of, a, a lot of what founders say is that, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's a relationship type business with, um, with finding investors. And so the fact that you're able to come from kind of outside that industry initially and develop relationships and be able to get funded and be able to raise, I mean, that's just, you know, it, incredible as well hats off to you well and i appreciate you saying that but i do think that a lot of it is like we're we're having this conversation the other day that we've worked really really hard so that's important and then we've also gotten really really lucky and so that's also important but it's not like neither thing replaces the other thing right so like when we said when we said like hey we need to raise money i knocked on every door and i had every conversation that i could possibly have but there's a lot of people who do that that never get connected with the right person at the right time. So I, like, I, w I do want to attribute the, the, the part that is attributable to luck that we, you know, have had some really good luck in certain, you know, certain times. Absolutely. How has COVID affected Yellowbird? Gosh, the, the two big areas that it's affected us are, first of all, we do, we do a, a significant amount of sales in food service, which, you know, is, is just now kind of coming back online, but it's changed a lot, right? Like there, there's, um, you know, a yellow bird at a lot of restaurants and a lot of food service establishments, you find it at like the shared condiment stand. And a lot of places aren't doing that now. So it's like, a you know, they've got to do single serve stuff or they have to do it not at all, or, or they have to package it for you in back of house. So a lot of our food service business has gone away or it's changed radically enough that it's, you know, we've, we've lost, you know, we lost a lot of those, a lot of those sales and a lot of people have, right? Like we're fortunate that that's not our only source of revenue, right? That we're not a strictly food service company. We sell online and we sell in retail and um, obviously like, like online sales have been really good for everybody. Um, and then retail food sales, obviously like the, you know, when people were in that, in, at the beginning of this, when people were in that hoarding mode, um, it's not, it's not necessarily like people were hoarding hot sauce, but the, you know, hot sauce did uptick a little bit because people are kind of buying a lot of everything. So, you know, like for, for, we had certainly had like an uptick in, in retail grocery and we had an uptick in, um, online. It, it wasn't one for one. It, it didn't replace what we lost in food service. Um, you know, and our food, so like our food service partners are a big part of our family, our Yellowbird family. So it was, you know, aside from like a revenue hit, it was, it was, it sucked to just to see all the, you know, pain and suffering that was happening around the, the food service business. Another thing that, you know, affected our company and a lot of, a lot of companies is just all of the, like, we do a lot of events. We do hot sauce shows across the country every year. We do, you know, food trade shows, both for like food service and for retail. Um, so like we're, we're on the road a, a lot of the year doing these uh, shows and events and things like that. And we do, you know, we do store demos. So like any opportunity that, that we have to like go into a store and get somebody to like sample our sauce, but it, it's like, you know, that obviously went completely away. Like there's no, it's going to be a long time still before like people want to go into a grocery store and have a stranger hand them, Un, you know, an unwrapped piece of food and then they eat it, right? Like this is, 
you know, like how you, people used to like go into Costco and just like on a Saturday or Sunday at Costco, you just like make a meal off of samples. Like nobody wants to do that. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a long road before that kind of comes back. So th those are, you know, some of the biggest areas where it's affected us. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and, and, and thanks for sharing about, you know, online sales, um, how, how that's been as well as, um, uh, what's everything's life in retail? It's it's very very heartbreaking with with what's happening in, in the restaurant community. What's one book that inspired you personally, and one book that inspired you professionally? Well, I actually have three books that I'll tell you about, and and I, I think that all of them have inspired me personally and professionally because I don't really separate the two things very well. Uh, the first the first book I read uh, when I was in college, it's uh, Siddhartha. I won't spoil the book for you, but you know, Siddhar Siddhartha by Herman Hess, it's a, it's a man's journey, right? All, all of my books are kind of about, are, are kind of like narratives about, uh, about journeys in one way or another. But uh, Siddhartha is one of them. I think that it kind of, it kind of, uh, it kind of in, inspires you to move and to act and to be content, you know, bo both, to, both, to, both, to, both to move and to act and to be content, which a lot of people don't always see as the same things. Um, so it's very, I mean, it's very Zen uh, kind of book, but, the, but that book, I, I think about that one, I think about that book, a lot like I actually got fired from a job for I had started reading Siddhartha and I couldn't put it down and I was working uh I was working at this gym um at the time and I like brought it into work and I was like reading it and I got fired for reading that book on the job but you know what I would like in the long run I I would have rather finished that book than kept that job so that's one of that's one of my books, Siddhartha. Um, another book, um, and these are, I'm, t I'm listing these in chronological order from of when I read them, but there's another book. It's kind of a silly book, but it's called Who Moved My Cheese uh, by Spencer Johnson. It, it is, it's one of those books that was like right time and right place for me, but the, it, it's kind of a, um, it's kind of an allegory, right? But the, the book, the book is about there's four main characters in the book and it takes place inside of a maze and there's two humans and two mice and they all live on cheese. So it's, a, you know, cheese is like an analogy for like what is fulfilling to them and what brings them happiness. And the kind of the message of the book is that every once, every like so often they'll wake up you know, the human, the two humans are there and the two mice are there and they'll wake up, you know, and every day they wake up and there's cheese there and they, all four of them enjoy the cheese, the two humans and the two mice. And then, you know, every so often they'll wake up and there won't be any cheese. And so the mice will like, the mice will like sniff around and realize there's no cheese and they'll move on down the maze looking for the cheese. Meanwhile, the humans you know, go through all of the phases of kind of like processing this, you know, grief and denial and anger and, you know what I mean? Like, well, there will be cheese, there will be cheese tomorrow. And they kind of like just sit around and they're like, well, I can't believe that there's not cheese. Well, there should be cheese. Well, we deserve cheese. And, and so it's like, by the time they finally move on, they've wasted so much time and so much energy. And like, I read that book, my mom actually gave me that book. I had after uh, after college, I moved out to California, and uh, you know because I was going to be a famous actor and musician and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, obviously, right? Um, so, <laughs> so like I had moved out to California, and I was just like, I was just hating it out there. Like there was nothing that I enjoyed about. Like I didn't really enjoy the work that I was doing. It was, it was all like. Oh, I'm like an extra at something like I I wasn't really enjoying any of it right and uh and I read you know I read this book and it was like it's so simple that like like if you're like if you if you're not if you're in this bad spot it's so easy most of the time to just change something right like and I think that it is it anyway the that's I've just spoiled the whole book for you by giving you my uh, interpretation but who moves my who moved my cheese is a really good 
quick read, you know, like get it on Kindle, get it at the library. You can read it in like an afternoon. It's not a novel. It is a, it's kind of like a, you know, you can read it in like a couple of hours. Um, and it, it's a really good thing, you know, if, if you're stuck in some decision or stuck in a rough spot, it kind of, it's kind of one of those things that puts it in perspective and, you know, says like, let's simplify this. Like, are you happy? Check yes or no. Like if no, then do something else, right? That's the whole moral of the book. And it's just very well, it's, it's much, I think that he makes, you know, I think that Spencer Johnson makes the point much more elegantly than I just have, but that's the point of that book. Um, the, and the third book that I think kind of, it, it is actually kind of more of a business book, but like the tipping, tipping point by Ma Malcolm Gladwell um, was, was very like, you know, again, it was at the time uh, I read that book in the early days of Yellowbird when I was having a hard time, con you know, like I knew that I had something that was really special and I was having a hard time convincing, you know, other people that it was really special. Like the, I think that reading that book at the time that I read it, you know, because that book is all about how things go viral. And a lot of it is about how like, a lot of that book is about here are products or ideas that people thought were stupid and thought were stupid and they thought were stupid. And then all of a sudden, everybody loves it. But it like everybody else kind of like flipped on a dime because it was kind of around long enough or it just happened to be, you know, and so you, the, that book was, in, I guess, inspiring to me and, you know, something that I would recommend just for like an entrepreneur, because you, you look at these things that you look at the business and you try to think about it from their perspective. And it's like, well, you know, the public might've flipped on a dime, but on the business side, like somebody, somebody had to keep saying, no, this is worthwhile. I promise you, I promise this is a good idea. And so like, that's that's essentially been my job at Yellowbird is like I got, I promise this is a good idea. People are going to care about it. it. Like I swear like two two more everybody makes fun of me for like my, you know, I used to say a lot very seriously like just two just give it two more weeks, guys. Two more weeks. Like this will like we'll do this thing and like uh and so now we'll do something we'll be going through some like tough time and people are like just two more weeks, right, George? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> but I do, but I do think that that's kind of like, that was kind of one of my takeaways from that book. And I know that that's not, that wasn't really the point of the book. The point of the book was to kind of examine like what, what is, what's happening in society or like psychologically with, with groups of consumers that, that, the, that these things will be not cool, not cool, not cool. And then cool. Um, but like the kind of the takeaway for me was like, I guess who's to say what is cool? Like who's to tell me what is cool? Like if you're a musician, does a record label tell you what is like, what would a record, like if I was a real hip musician, I'm an okay musician, right? But like if I was like an up and coming musician and I had a real new sound, you know, like would a record label tell me that what I'm doing is cool? You know, like would, it, would, a, would a CD store tell me that what I'm doing? Would iTunes say like, hey, what you're doing is yeah, like, would the Billboard Top 100 tell me that what I'm doing is cool? Like, like I would have to just keep believing that what I was doing was cool and worthwhile. And maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But it's not, you know, like, you know, like, uh, Walmart can't determine for like a food product or whatever, like, if you're making clothing, and you want to sell it to Target, the, their customers are going to make that determination. And then they're going to sell what their customers want. Same with like a record label or something like, if you're, if you're, if they don't like your sound, but then you've got a hundred million fans who do, well, they're going to sign you, right? It's, it's not their job to say what's cool. It's just their job to sign what's cool or to sell what's working. Really loved all your points, to be honest, which each of these uh, three books and really excited. I have a, a books page on the website. So excited to add these two uh, to that for uh, for listeners to uh, check out. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that was probably the most important one, you know, and I don't know if, you know, like Yellowbird is, is it's all still in process, you know, it's going well, but there's no way, there's really no way to say like, you've made it or you haven't made it, right? Like, if I had not asked for, you know, and I still, I still ask for advice. There's, there's so many people who are smarter at, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're trying to do. So like, 
like asking for advice is just like don't don't be afraid to do that. I think that's always great. I mean, what I what I kind of tell myself as well is the worst that could happen is they say no, right? Whenever you whenever you ask for something. Well, George, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm I was happy to do it. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having George on, and I really appreciate him being so candid about sharing the good and the bad when scaling Yellowbird. You can follow George on Twitter at GE Milton. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.